Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In 2018, New Haven artist Titus Kafar won a MacArthur Genius Grant. His art is featured everywhere from MoMA to the cover of Time magazine. For a 2017 TED Talk, Kafar recreated a 17th century painting, and then he partially painted over some of the subjects with broad white strokes. Here's audio from that presentation. Painting is a visual language where everything in the painting is meaningful, is important, it's coded. But sometimes, because of the compositional structure, because of compositional hierarchy, it's hard to see other things. By covering up some of the characters in the painting, Kafar brings into clearer view a young black boy who had been hidden in the background. Historically speaking, in research on these kinds of paintings, I can find out more about the lace that the woman is wearing in this painting than I, the manufacturer of the lace, than I can about this character here, about his dreams, about his hopes, about what he wanted out of life. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, Titus Gaffar joins to talk about his work with Next Haven. He's mentoring young artists and working towards greater equity in a world that too often pushes BIPOC artists to the background. And later, Connecticut State Poet Laureate Antoinette Brimbell about how she plans to focus on collaboration with her new role. But let's start with Titus Kafar and Jason Price. The two friends co-founded Next Haven in 2019. Today, Titus serves as president and Jason as chairman of the board. I asked them how Next Haven came to be and what they hope to accomplish. Here's Titus. So in, in many ways, uh, Next Haven is a collage of art and business and more specifically, Jason and myself. <laughs> it's uh, is his brain squished together with my brain, and this is is what we got. Um, so, from the art perspective, I'll talk about that, and then I'll let Jason talk about the business perspective a little bit. From the arts perspective, we are a new national arts model dedicated to advancing the careers of young artists of color through access and education. Um, I went to a really good art school, enjoyed myself there, even though it was incredibly frustrating at times. Um, feel like I moved on to a path of quote unquote success, but realized that my time in graduate school taught me nothing about the business of art. And the sort of problem with that is everyone in the art world knows the business of art except for the artists, which means that the artists end up getting taken advantage of. So we put a program together that we felt like could create the vocabulary, the language to speak with artists about that thing that we don't like to talk about so much, which is the money of it all. Because what we recognize is that art artists are economically disadvantaged and being taken advantage of by people who fundamentally know that there is a lot of money in this business and it behooves them, unfortunately, to 
to take advantage of artists. That's, that's unfortunately what happens a lot. And so I use much of my personal experience in the art world and all of the mistakes that I've made uh, to create um, a portion of our curriculum and teach through that experience. And let me let me just say before um, you start getting people, you know, tweeting in about some uh, calling in um, all all galleries aren't bad. Everybody in the art world is not bad. Um, and if you're good, obviously, I'm not talking about you. So Titus, you know, mentioned that as sort of a mashup of, you know, his his best attribute, his superpowers and, you know, and kind of what I what I know as a, as a business person. So my, my background is, you know, kind of banking and entrepreneurism and private equity. And I think what I like to talk about is the just kind of like the model and what that means relative to the art world. So. You know, even though Next Haven is kind of known as this place that incubates artists, and that's what it really is, the the kind of setup and the components of what we decided to do are central to supporting the people that we care about, which are the artists, right? And so what that means is I talked to Titus about the, I said, you know, what is the art market? What does it mean to be a maker? What does it mean to be in conversation with collectors? What does it mean to be part of a gallery? How much does a gallery charge you to connect you to the collectors? And there's, you know, there's fees and there's money that are exchanging hands and value that is exchanging hands. And what Titus pointed out is that, you know, the artist often is kind of left out of that, that sort of exchange. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to educate our artists in a particular way that put them into in position to extract the most value for their contribution to the market. And so that meant that we had to control the studio, as Titus said, a particular type of education, um, access to the right collectors and right galleries. Um, Next Haven is in a neighborhood that we care about. And that when we do that really well, we're in position to then make sure that that value, and it could be money, it could be notoriety, it can be, um, you know, as Titus would say, you know, contribution to the canon of art. But we're in position to make sure it goes to the people that we care about. So let's call a thing a thing, because you both have talked about the ways in which artists have been exploited, the ways in which even understanding that world and that space is often far removed from artists, but in particular, artists of color. And I'm listening to the two of you talk about this experience and this model and what you're creating to protect artists of color from that exploitation when the people who are investing and buying often do not look like those who create. What does it mean to create this model at a time when Black artists in particular are becoming more sort of in the mainstream, so to speak, but wanting to be clear that it's about protecting the art and the artist and not just about creating a product for other people. How do you balance those two? So, I mean, you're right. There is, there is something, there is movement happening in the market um, for black and brown artists right now. Um, folks are hearing us. Mm. <laughs> They're listening. Are they hearing? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know which one of those would you, you would use, but I would definitely say that people are looking at what black artists are making right now. Um, my 
perspective on the matter is that if we look at the numbers and we look at the statistics, as good as this is, um, it still represents a small portion of the market. The numbers that are being done in the art world are in the 50 to $80 billion, right? That's what we're talking about, the marketplace. And when we talk about that marketplace, black and brown artist sales are moving up. But I don't want people to get the impression that they're anywhere close to where we want them to be, right? Where we need them to be. It's good, but it has not been resolved. Let's, let's, let's put it that way. The second thing is um, the art market is fickle. And so who they're interested in right now is not who they're going to be interested in later. So I don't really, I, I don't really, I don't really like pay that much attention to that part of it. The art world, um, they're, they go with whatever the taste and the fashion is. We're working with artists to make art that, as Jason said, that engages the canon. That is to say that it's going to be here when we're dead. Um, it's not about fashion. It's not about this moment. It's not about what, what people like. It's about ideas that have the capacity to change the world and putting that on canvas, making a sculpture of it, whatever it needs to be. That's what it, that's what it's about. So, so that's the, that's the first um, part of it. The second part of it is I want to be very clear. Our focus is black and brown artists. Absolutely. But what we say is we reflect the demographics of the community that we are a part of. And so there, there is currently a white artist in our program, but what, we're pretty, we're pretty direct in our interviews from the beginning. What we say is this is a safe space for black and brown people. We need to understand that you are an advocate. If you are here and you're an advocate and you're ready to roll with us, then this is a place you can be. We're, we're not an organization that limits in that way. Again, we will always reflect the demographics of the communities that we're a part of. And so it's, it's never going to be a majority white program unless that neighborhood is a majority white neighborhood. And, um, we are doing everything that we can do to make sure that that neighborhood uh, is not gentrified in a way that would push out the people that we came there for. I lived in that neighborhood first. That's the reason why I'm there. Jason, let's talk about that neighborhood where Next Haven is physically located, which is the Dixwell neighborhood in New Haven. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with the neighborhood, why is it so important to have that as a womb or a home base for Next Haven, given the commitment to local entrepreneurs, given the commitment to artists and to that fullness of community and representation? What do we need to know about the neighborhood? Well, I think, I mean, just from a demographic standpoint, I mean, we did our research on some of the statistics um, surrounding the community and the people that live in that neighborhood, and they're not great. You know, in terms of home ownership, uh, you know, crime, uh, you know, income levels. And I think, you know, when it comes to art, we believe and Titus believes that art can change the world and change communities. And so if we're going to prioritize bringing the best artists to New Haven through, you know, putting together a model that we think can create change. We want to create change in neighborhoods that deserve investment. And so it's almost like foreign direct investment. If we can create um, a shiny object that has value and that we can get more money and capital from outside our neighborhood to be deployed within our community, we want to make sure that it goes to places that are underinvested. And so, you know, it's pretty simple. These are people that we care about. We care about all of New Haven, but we, in particular, we know that people of color 
um, are sometimes left out of the investment game. If we're going to do our part through, you know, the arts, believing that the arts can make that sort of change, we're doing it and prioritizing it in area areas and for people um, of color. We, um, I'll just add one piece to that is that like that neighborhood has been disinvested, underinvested, however you want to, however you want to say it for a really, really long time. Um, and what is great about the neighborhood still is the people. It's full of really amazing people and the folks uh, come out. We love that at our openings, you'll see, maybe you'll see the director of MoMA, but that's not nearly as exciting to me as the group of kids who just kind of hang out at our gallery space and know us and feel like this is this is their space. This is a part of their community and they feel comfortable in it. And everybody on our team knows that uh, they, are, they are to be made uh, to feel welcome. Um, that's, that's a non-negotiable uh, for us. So we also recognize that the other thing that's great about that community is there is a legacy there. There's a history there. Um, it's really easy to think about that period in which there was no investment in that neighborhood, but there was a before that. And before that, that was a neighborhood of rich culture. That was a neighborhood full of music. Um, and one thing that folks sometimes know is that the Monterey Club, that jazz club, um, famous jazz club in New Haven was right down the street from us. So we feel like we Although this is innovative and new, it's being built on the foundation that our ancestors left for us. Titus, how important is that for you as an artist, now as a mentor, a leader and an entrepreneur? How important is it for you to connect that historical significance of community, of community development and community agency with the ways that you now think about mentorship? Because you're mentoring young artists you're mentoring young people who may not yet see themselves as artists, but you are affirming that if that is the path they want to pursue, they can. How does that affect you as an artist? Well, so two things. One, um, it's no different than my art practice. Um, it's a it's a different manifestation, but it's the same kind of logic and reason, exploration and research. Um, it's like I make paintings, I make sculpture, and then this is another part of my practice. Um, what I what I what I mean by that is my practice is deeply rooted in understanding history. My practice is deeply rooted in seeing what is often not seen. Um, my practice is rooted in taking materials and changing them and making you see something that you had ignored before. And I do that all from the perspective of selfishness, really, like wanting to see it myself first. I don't set out to make work to educate people. That's never my motivation for making work. I think you end up with something quite didactic. Um, and that's not my, that's not my approach. I first make a work because I need to understand something about myself or about the world that I'm a part of or the community that I'm a part of. I also recognize that mentorship is how I, how I got here in many ways. And so it is, it is a continuation. Let me, let me talk about the program for just a second. So in our 
program, we scour the, the world now because our, our program is, is now international for amazing artists. We have seven slots for artists and two slots for curators. Every fellow accepted into our program works with a high school apprentice. That's not a side project. It's not some little extra thing. That's fundamental to what we do. So when we get artists in, we inevitably end up with phenomenal human beings. You got to be a great artist to get here, but you have to be a phenomenal human being to be willing to share your practice with a young person. And that's not everybody. Everybody is not capable of that. Not everybody wants to do that. You may be the greatest technician in the world. That doesn't mean that you can be a Next Haven artist. Next Haven artist is about that community, is about that openness, it is about that sharing. And if that doesn't, if that's not a part of your philosophy, you can't be here. Jason, I want to turn to you because listening to Titus talk about, you're very clear about the kind of people who can be in the space of Next Haven and that program because you want people who will bring that level of respect and humility to the community and to the young apprentices with whom they will work. And Next Haven recently had an exhibition called From the Outside In, and you've mentioned the word disinvestment several times, the historic disinvestment in the Dixwell community and in many ways in the young people of that community. And as I was looking through the images from the exhibit, I was struck by the empty desk where the students have the words on the desk thinking about the political dynamics that they're facing and how really their worth, their value, their safety has been reduced to political gain for others in ideology. And I want to share with the listeners this part of the writing on the desk that says, I eat cereal to the sound of cartoon, gunfire, and chew popcorn while bullets ricochet on the big screen. How do you see that kind of exhibition being able to challenge our thinking, but also challenge people who have been complicit in not investing in young people or investing in the Dixwell neighborhood in a holistic way? How does art allow us to challenge some of that silencing? The first thing I just want to mention is that that exhibition is the exhibition, the final exhibition for our apprentices. So that piece, you know, is constructed and made by a teenager, you know, living in this experience. And I think our contribution to helping express that voice and having that voice really carry and uh, uh, be respected and be pres preserved is in our way of kind of curating the capital and the people um, and the culture within our space that prioritizes that voice over um, someone's up someone else's perception of what that community can be. Is is that is that fair? So the reason why I think of that in terms of foreign direct investment is because. You know, if you think about the World Bank and the IMF, many times they're investing in, you know, developing countries. But when they invest in those countries, it comes with strings. You have to behave this way. You have to do this. You have to do that. And so we look at this as sort of a metaphor or a simile to foreign direct investment. We're bringing capital in. We're building new infrastructures. But it's intended to preserve 
and empower the culture that already exists and bring value and worth to it and not apologize for it being what it is, which, which I think is in many ways a departure from how money comes into these neighborhoods in many, in many ways. I mean, that's, you know, it's an opinion, it's in a practice in practice. And I think there's a, the other piece of it is when Titus and I talk to investors, usually in the form of philanthropists, um, you know, or wealthy individuals who want to support the arts and support the community. We're choosy about what money we take because they understand that we're going to prioritize um, the values that we think are most important for that particular neighborhood, which is why I think we're uniquely qualified to do this work, not just because Titus is a great artist and is thoughtful and innovative and not just because I understand money and, and frameworks, but because we come from places like this. We have family members who you know, are experiencing some of these issues. And so we're committed to making sure that we preserve the culture, but we can improve the foundation, the infrastructure so that, um, like we always say, like all, all boats rise, you know, in a rising tide. Titus, I, I know you have some perspective on this. <laughs> um, that's an incredibly powerful piece. Um, that desk is emblematic of what I think we are capable of doing. What I mean by that is our program brings in these high school students and gives them space. We, we have a really, really great team there, but we bring in these young people and they have space to work with artists who treat them as the whole human beings that they are. Um, sometimes school makes creative people, artistic people feel like they're out of place. But by seeing these artists who are moving forward in their career in a real way, it gives our high school kids the, the faith to know that this is a real possibility. This is a real future. The other thing is Senator Murphy came to visit us. And he came into that exhibition and he sat down at that desk and read those words. Now, I don't know how likely it would have been that our young artists who wrote those words would have in any other circumstance had the opportunity to say that to the senator, but through her practice, she was able to say that to the senator. She was able to make sure that that perspective was understood. Whether people understand that or not, or believe it or not, she is still his constituent. And he needs, he needs to know how his young people feel in this community. And I know that this is an issue that matters to him. He communicated as much. We have been able to bring folks into our neighborhood who have the capacity to help us make this change. I'm sad to say that in many cases, we bring folks who, have sh who should have been in our neighborhood a long time ago, but have not, have not been there. Um, I'm excited about the art itself um, that we make and are able to exhibit, particularly with our young people. But I'm also excited to, sh to give those young people the opportunity to see how powerful art can be. 
I think it's also powerful that you bring people into the community as opposed to thinking that the community has to go somewhere else to be heard and to be seen. And the fact that young people in their own words, on their own terms, are able to express their power and their commitment is a model for all of us that we really appreciate. Jason Price and Titus Gaffar are co-founders of Next Haven. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. You can see photos of the artwork displayed at Next Haven and it's from the Outside In exhibition on our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. When we return, Connecticut State Poet Laureate Antoinette Brimbell. She'll talk about how she's using poetry to tackle difficult topics like race and religion. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're talking to disruptors in Connecticut's arts community. This summer, Antoinette Brimbell became Connecticut's eighth state poet laureate. Antoinette is a poet and visual artist whose work with the Connecticut-based Witness Stones Project appeared in Poetry Magazine. She's author of three books of poetry, including most recently, These Women You Gave Me. Antoinette, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. Thank you so very much. I appreciate this. It's exciting to have you here, and I want to hear more about your role as Connecticut State Poet Laureate and about your work. But before we go there, I'm told that you were a little hesitant when you were first approached about this episode where we're featuring disruptors whose everyday work challenges and dismantles what we would consider to be the status quo. Talk to me more about why you were uncertain if you are a disruptor. Well, you know, I think when I first heard the word, I thought this sounds, um, I don't know, somehow subversive, right? And it has a negative connotation. And so I went on the website because I wanted to see exactly, I guess, how subversive (laughs) this particular podcast was. I thought, hmm. Am I a disruptor? And if I am, what does that mean? And so um, also as a person who loves, loves language, I'm very interested in words and in all of their multiple meanings. 
ultimately, after thinking about it for a long time, I realized that I guess I am a disruptor in the sense that me just walking into certain spaces disrupts the status quo. Um, I think even um, when I walk into the classroom, this six foot tall black woman with, you know, dreadlocks and, and, and some piercings and some tattoos, that is a disruption of what people would think that the everyday professor might be. And then I thought, you know what, there are some spaces, places, attitudes, systems that need disruption. And that's not a negative word. And so I was thinking, you know, that's probably going to show up in a poem somewhere because maybe a word that I had discounted has now allowed me to see myself in a totally different light. You are seeing yourself in a different light and our state is now seeing you in a different role. And as I said at the top, congratulations on being named the State Poet Laureate. Share with our listeners what that entails traditionally and also what you hope to bring to your role during this term. I think if we want to look at it um, overall, a poet laureate is someone who makes sure that they bring and advocate for poetry across the state. Um, so that's, I guess, the definition in the broadest term. When it was time for me to kind of figure out what I might like to do in the role, I considered some of my most recent experiences. For example, I have been writing poetry since I was about seven years old. And so um, it's always been pretty much a solitary endeavor. I might go to workshop, you know, and then put it in the air there and have other people um, comment on the work and say, well, consider this or consider that. But mostly it's been a solitary endeavor. However, recently I have had the benefit of being in collaborative spaces. So, for example, I just... Um, I don't want to say finished because I hope this continues to go on and on and on. But I was invited um, by former poet laureate uh, Marilyn Nelson to join uh, three other poets, Kate Russian and Rhonda Ward. Rhonda Ward herself, a for former poet laureate of New London, to um, write poems based on uh, witness stones. So the Witness Stones Project is a place that actually goes and, and puts down monuments where formerly enslaved individuals once resided or um, spent time. And so the four of us got together with Carolyn Wakeman, um, who was a historian um, and had been studying slavery in the old line. And we, we did research and we talked and we went back to, you know, our, our individual homes and, and, and worked on our poems. And then we came back together again via Zoom. And it was a wonderful collaborative experience. What happened was that 
we were able to support each other because when you're doing that level of research about things that are that painful, you know, you, you need to be able to talk about that. You need to be able to release some of that. You need to be able to, um, to lift each other up. Right. So we worked on these poems and we talked back and forth and we shared things that we found in our research. We were able to ask Carolyn, our historian, questions, and she was able to give us answers if she had them. And then we um, had the finished product, uh, project and uh, the Poetry Foundation, Poetry uh, Magazine published our pieces along with uh, little excerpts about the collaborative process. So this is the long answer, but all I'm swimming in all of this collaboration. And I'm feeling that we're going exponentially forward and collecting all of this uh, history and creating um, poetry and, you know, other types of art, all because we've got together. And so when it came time for me to say, well, what would you like to do with your tenure? The first thing I thought of is connections and collaborations. And that's pretty much going to be the theme of my tenure. I want to bring people together. Let's talk about the art that you're creating, because I think, Antoinette, about where we are as a country right now, where things seem so heavy and so divisive, and to even mention a word like race, to even mention the enslavement of African people, People recoil from that. And to do it, talking about Connecticut that often people don't even think of in that historical way, your art is creating space for a conversation, but it's also inviting people into that history. And you have so graciously agreed to share one of your poems with our listeners, and that is When George Met Humphrey. Would you like yes. to share? Well, I want to start out by saying, uh, I think I've mentioned her multiple times. Carolyn Wakeman was the historian that worked with us on this particular project. And I was struck by something that was um, in her notes about um, Humphrey, who I was writing about. And that becomes the epigraph of the poem, which simply says, General George Washington is thought to have rested at slave owner McCurdy's house while traveling from Boston to New York in 1776, Humphrey would have prepared for the distinguished guest. So the poem, When George Met Humphrey. Washington's late September blue grays question the darkness of this slave's eyes. Fury flash-cooled in a deluge of tears turned, obsidian edged in bleached eagle talon. Humphrey's eyes only reflect back Washington's war-weary face. It is safer this way. A slave is all function and no humanity. Whispered assent and dust kicked up when he turns on heel. Two steps ahead to prepare the way, two steps behind in his ordained place. Humphrey is the darkness Washington steps through on his way inside to the warm hearth 
and smells of roasting mutton and root vegetables. Tonight, Humphrey will bed down in the stable, fresh from a stint on the sea, the delicacy of rat meat and pocketed wild onions pinched between weevil flour biscuits still on his tongue. That's Connecticut State Poet Laureate Antoinette Brimbell. She read from her poem, When George Met Humphrey. Coming up, Brimbell talks about working in multiple mediums and how she's challenging one of the oldest narratives in Western culture. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're talking to Connecticut artists who are changing the state through their creative work and outreach. Antoinette Brimbell is Connecticut's newest state poet laureate, and she's author of three books of poetry, including most recently, These Women You Gave Me. Before the break, we heard Antoinette's moving poem, When George Met Humphrey. The poem was inspired by her work with the Witness Stones in Connecticut. That project uses markers to honor places in the state where enslaved people lived, worked, or worshipped. In addition to being a poet, Antoinette is also a visual artist. I asked her about working with different mediums and how that allows her to tell these stories with such richness and texture. I think that some images are best captured, you know, in language where an individual has the opportunity to allow the reader to imagine and envision for themselves. And then some things I think are best left to visual art where the story is told through color and through texture and the individual has the opportunity to stand and see through the eyes of the artist, a more specific kind of picture. I think each of the arts brings with it its own strengths. And so sometimes when I have an idea, I think, you know, this, yeah, this needs to be a piece of visual art. And then sometimes um, I think, well, most times I think this needs to be a poem because poetry, for some reason, is my first language, so to speak. It's something I discovered very young and have been using all my life. And I tend to think in metaphor and simile. And so that's generally my first um, choice. I think what happens when you bring poetry, visual art, or poetry and music together is this burst of of sensory uh, goodness. Uh, Yeah, sensory goodness. (laughs) And so you you get to experience the the, um, world of the poem at the same time that you are swaying and feeling the music resonating inside of your body and you're kind of going on this 
you know, flow and crescendo and decrescendo, and then it's punctuated by the language. That's a good mixture, uh, poetry and music. Um, additionally, I, I think that sometimes poetry um, can inform visual art and vice versa. I do a lot of ekphrastic poetry where I look at pieces of art and I explore through the, the poetry where the art has taken me. And so I think that's helpful if um, someone is more attuned to language than they are to the artwork they meet the poem on the page and then they turn back and look at the painting and it becomes uh, new to them. So I believe in the fusion of the arts. And that's one of the things I'd also want to do um, during my tenure as poet laureate is to bring visual artists um, together with poets and uh, just have everybody create new art that would not have been in the world had not these collaborations taken place. I could listen to you talk about this and experience because there's an art even in the way that you communicate this and that you convey it. It brings people in to the space instead of feeling like this is something that is so elite that I can't understand. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally into this. Because I feel it, especially when I think about your latest book of poetry, These Women You Gave Me, because so much of your practice is about sharing these stories of people who get overlooked or misunderstood or misrepresented and asserting power and agency through art in a very different format. Share a little about that book with our listeners. Yes. Oh, my goodness. So that book began when I wanted to know who this character Lilith was. You know, there's representations of Lilith in popular culture that are very interesting, like the show Cheers, you know, Fraser's wife is named Lilith and she's mean and she's very shrewd and shrill and all of those things, you know, and then there's the rock concert Lilith Fair and, and everyone always refers to Lilith as like the first feminist and, and she's demonized and all of this. And I was like, okay, so who is this chick? I started doing a lot of research, but I didn't find a lot at first in terms of who and what she was until I went to uh, Jewish Midrash, which is, you know, the stories that are part of um, the Jewish tradition. So basically, for those of you uh, who don't know the story of Lilith, Lilith is Adam's first wife. Yeah, that's shocking, right? I did not know that he had um, a wife before Eve. And um, Lilith was formed just the same way that Adam was, you know, out of the, the clay of the, the earth. And although Adam was created first and then um, Lilith, and they had some dispute amongst themselves about, uh, well, supremacy. And it played out in the bedroom, who would be the one to be on top and Lilith said, you know, no, I think that that's something that we can share. And him saying, no, I was created first. And so therefore, you know, I am the superior one. 
And she got so frustrated and so angry with him that she spoke the name of God. And when she did that, she sprouted wings and flew away. And so the story often is, I think, misunderstood that because she didn't submit to her husband, that she became a demon and flew away. And when I read it, I said, no, that's not how I see it. I see it as though she she committed a sin against God by speaking his name. And he wasn't, you know, you weren't supposed to speak the name of God. And so subsequently she was punished for that, not for her argument with Adam. So I thought, what would happen if women told the stories? Because most of these stories, we, you know, well, all of these stories, we come to from a patriarchal lens, right? And so what would Lilith say for herself? And then after I wrote the section about Lilith, I thought maybe that I was finished. And then I thought, well, you know, what would Eve have to say? Because, oh my gosh, Eve constantly gets, you know, disparaged for bringing about the fall of mankind. And so I started really thinking about it. And I realized that she's a lot more innocent than we give her credit for. She comes into the world really not knowing anything but good. And then we get angry at her for, um, you know, succumbing to Satan and all of the things that he's talking about, but he's still a beautiful being, right? Yeah, he's fallen. But he's, his body is still encrusted with jewels. His voice is still beautiful, you know, because when he was Lucifer, he was leading the chorus in heaven. And so she sees this beautiful being in front of her who's talking to her. She doesn't know what a lie is. She doesn't know what evil is. Everything around her is beautiful, wonderful, and amazing. She's innocent. Right. So she's been beguiled and it's not her fault. And I wanted to bring that out. I had these two different perspectives. And then I thought, I, you know what? I need another voice, someone who is stepped back from everything. And that became the Garden of Eden, who is looking at helping us to understand everything, sort of like a, a Greek chorus would, you know, in, in a play. And that's how the book came together. And I have to admit that as I began to write it, I was uncomfortable. I was afraid, you know, because I'm dealing with sacred texts and I'm challenging the way we read maybe those sacred texts. Um, if I had thought about the word disruptor, I would have used it. <laughs> Because I was really disrupting narratives, and um, and I I fought through it, and uh, just said no. I have a right, just like maybe Lilith and Eve, to to tell a story from a female perspective. So, in the time that we have together, I would ask that you would share with us another poem. Duplex, Black Mamas Praying, also disruptors in many ways. 
Yes. So this particular poem um, was written during all of the unrest of, you know, 2020 and everything that was going on at that particular time. And I'd had the line, uh, Black Mama Stay on Their Knees Praying, in my head for a long, long time. I didn't really know where to go with it. But the weight of all of that, of 2020, and um, and then finding this new form by another African-American poet named Jericho Brown, the duplex, where it had this, this repetition um, and this pleading in it. I said, this is the form that I'm going to use. So I'm going to go ahead and read Duplex Black Mamas Praying. Black mamas stay on their knees praying, cursing the lies folks tell about how the world don't need you. The world don't need you is a lie folks tell themselves when they step over blood gelled black and slick. Folks step over black blood gelled and slick to get on with things. Don't bring bones to the cemetery. Bones in the cemetery hear the prophecy. Together, bone to bone, tendons and flesh, skin, bone to bone, tendons and flesh, skin, together, Four winds breathe into thee, slain, that they may live. Breathe four winds into thee, slain, that they may live. Calling forth prophecy is no light work, no. But for Joshua, the sun stood still, the moon stopped. Black mamas, stay on your knees, praying, praying. Antoinette Brimbell is Connecticut State Poet Laureate. She's author most recently of These Women You Gave Me. Antoinette, thank you for being a disruptor. Thank you. This episode of Disrupted was produced by Jay Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang Barnum, and Katie Talarski. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you have feedback or ideas for this show, you can email us at disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.